So I've pointed out why this is a fascinating passage because of the fact that the earliest manuscripts do not include it. But this, I also said this passage is a really famous passage. And one of the reasons it's so famous is because there's no passage, I think, in the New Testament that will so capture, captivate our imagination. This is one of those passages that gets right under the skin. It will grip your heart. It will stir in your soul's feelings for Jesus, for the woman. And so as we, as we come to this passage, I hope that it will um, have the impact that it was intended to have, and that is to show us Christ in all his glory. I've got four points just to use to, to kind of guide us through this passage. The passage opens with a teaching session. It then becomes a, a courtroom trial session, if you like. It then becomes a writing session, and then it ends with a one-on-one -on -one session between Jesus and the woman. So we'll just walk through each of these stages. So John sets the scene for us in verse 53 to verse 2 of chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So here's a scene that is painted for us. Early in the morning, Jesus goes to the temple. And as he's in the temple, great crowds gather and he begins teaching them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in, adult, in the act of adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So whilst Jesus is in the business of teaching this crowd, there's a bit of a commotion because these religious leaders abruptly, rudely interrupt the teaching session. And they come with a woman. They're holding her firmly. They, they drag her right in the middle, bring her to Jesus. And you can imagine that all eyes were then fixated on this woman who's placed in front of Jesus. Quite possibly for this woman, as she looked up at the crowds there, she saw some of her friends, her family, neighbors, colleagues. This must have been the most shame-filled and embarrassing and humiliating circumstance of her entire life. Like, imagine it this morning, a woman dragged in by religious leaders and brought to the front for all of us to see. And to add insult to injury, the religious leaders make this jaw-dropping announcement. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I don't know what your immediate reaction to that announcement is. But remember, this was a deeply religious culture. They were in a deeply religious setting. They were in the temple. And this was an honor and shame culture. So I imagine that there was a palpable sense of horror, disdain, and scorn by all the crowds directed to this woman. You can imagine people whispering to her, what did they just say? They said that she's been caught in the act of adultery. She's a homewrecker. She's a covenant breaker. 
She's been unfaithful. Now, I don't know what your immediate reaction was, but my immediate reaction to hearing this statement and thinking about it just for a single moment was, how in the world did these religious leaders catch this woman in the act of adultery? Were they peering through her bedroom window? Like, well, what were they doing that they caught her in the act? And the second question that flows from that is, it takes two to tangle. Where's the man? He's strangely absent from the proceedings. And the law of Moses stated that both parties were guilty. So there's something strange about this scene, about this whole affair. And so this teaching session instantly becomes a courtroom session. You see, we're now in the temple and this woman seems to be on trial. The crowds are the jury. The religious leaders, they're the crown prosecution. Jesus seems to be the judge. And this poor, helpless, defenseless woman, well, she's in the dock. She's the accused. But again, if you just reflect on it for a, for a few moments, it's strange, isn't it? That the religious leaders would bring someone to Jesus for him to put her on trial. Like it's a wrong courtroom. They should be at the home of the high priest Caiaphas. They should be gathering the Sanhedrin. They should be gathering the Jewish ruling court. But instead, they're, they've got this woman and they've brought her to Jesus. They want Jesus, it seems, to pass judgment on her circumstance. That's strange. Now let me tell you what I think is really going on. The woman's not on trial. It's Jesus that's on trial. It's not the woman that's in the dock. It's Jesus that's in the dock. In fact, if you look down at verse 6, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. We know from all four Gospels that the scribes and the Pharisees were constantly plotting and seeking how they could bring about Jesus' downfall. Sometimes they come and they ask him questions about which is, what is the greatest commandment. Let's talk about divorce, Jesus. Let's talk about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus. And every time they ask him a question, it's because they want to catch him out. And I suspect that everyone, as they had heard this opening statement hanging in the air, teacher, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Everybody was waiting with bated breath to see what they would say next. And here's what they say next. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Can you hear the tone of their voice? They made a glaring omission. The law stated that if, someone, that if two parties are caught in the act of adultery, both would be stoned. They choose to leave out the fact that men should also be stoned. And, and actually, in the law of Moses, it doesn't specify stoning as the means of death. There are some cases in adultery where that would be the, the instrument of death, but they take the law and they kind of twist it. Moses commanded us to stone such women. You hear their disdain? This woman's worthy of death. So here's our question. So Jesus, teacher, what do you say? Now, so we don't miss the moment, this is the most loaded question they could ask Jesus. 
there are only two possible answers. Yes, stone her. In accordance with the law of Moses. Jesus says that these religious leaders are going to run to the Romans and say, he's just said we should stone a woman and he's not asked for your permission. Remember, Israel is under Roman occupation, the only one who can pass the sentence of death were the Romans. Hence the reason in our Mark's mini-series, Jesus had to go before Pilate. If he says, no, don't stone her, these religious leaders are running to Caiaphas' house, they're running, gathering the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, let's have a trial and let's condemn Jesus. He's in breach of the law of God. It's, it's a perfect setup. It's a perfect trap. You can imagine these religious leaders folding their arms and smugly standing there thinking, we've got you now, Jesus, checkmate. This woman's just a little pawn in their little plan to bring about his downfall. Jesus will either condemn himself and find himself standing before the civil authorities, the Romans, or standing before the religious authorities, the Jews. Now, just, just remember, who, who are these men? They're the religious leaders. These men are some of the most highly esteemed and respected men in all our culture. Outwardly, everybody would view them as men of morality, integrity, and righteousness. They come to Jesus. They, they, they even butter him up, teacher, but they don't want to be taught. They, 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 they give the impression that they're really zealous about the law of God when in reality they want to destroy, they want to kill the Son of God. And so here's the first twist of this passage. The author does not want us to be scandalized by the woman's behavior. We ought to be scandalized by the behavior of the religious leaders. You know, they say they caught this woman red-handed in the act. Jesus is about to catch them red-handed in their act. Their plan, their plot to murder him. And just before we move on, let me just press pause here for a moment because we need to do some self-examination. You see... We're more like the religious leaders than we would care to admit. How often do we see the sins of other people and we stand in judgment? We might never verbalize it, but inwardly we might heap condemnation on them. All the while being, remaining completely, totally oblivious to our own sin. Other people's sins loom large in our gaze and in our view, our own sins, but we hardly think about them. And so church, we, we need to resist the temptation that we all face, I've done it so many times in my life, being a hypocrite. Judging others whilst never judging yourself. In fact, if there's any application if you see someone else's sin and, and, and it looms large in your mind, your first response should be to look inward and realize that you are just as guilty because you too are a sinner. Examine yourself. 
Okay, so we've looked at the teaching session. It's become a courtroom session. Well, things are just about to become a writing session. Uh, look down at what happens next. Verse 6b, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I said there was only two possible responses to this question, and there's actually a third way. What Jesus does here is, is brilliant. It's so careful, it's so deliberate. Instead of making an immediate verbal response, Jesus stoops down. Now, why might Jesus do that? Who do you think's lying on the floor? Who do you think's lying on the ground? The woman. And, and Jesus here, he 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 takes this low posture, because he's going to write on the ground, but perhaps at the exact same time, he's identifying with the humiliation of this woman because he cares for her. He loves her. He wants to ease the embarrassment of this woman. This is high definition, compassion, love that is moved to action. So let me press pause here and let's give another bit of practical advice. When you see someone sin spectacularly, you could learn from Jesus' response compassion. You see, Jesus knew this woman was a sinner. Everyone knew she was a sinner. These religious leaders had just made it known to everyone. Jesus also knew that this woman was a sufferer. She was suffering right now in front of everybody. She was being exposed, humiliated, an object of shame and scorn. But Jesus also knew that she could become a saint with him, through him, by what he'd come to do. And so his response to this woman is, is one of compassion. He, he bends down, and then we read, he starts writing in the sand. Now, this passage is fascinating, and it's fascinating because everybody wants to know, what did Jesus write in the sand? Does anybody know? Like, there's so much speculation among preachers and theologians and commentators. The first time we read about the finger of God writing is in Exodus chapter 31, Mount Sinai, two tablets of stone, the law of God. So maybe, just maybe, the thing that Jesus wrote on the ground was the Ten Commandments. This is the only time we read of Jesus writing in the Gospels. Jesus could write. What did he write? Well, others will say, no, no, no. If you read Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, it says this. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. He may well have written Jeremiah 17, verse 13. You see, the real adulterers were the religious leaders. They had forsaken God for themselves. They'd forsaken the fountain of living water. And we've just been studying John's gospel and we've seen that Jesus is the fountain of living water. Others say he just doodled in the sand. He just drew pictures. Just, just a moment of silence, a moment to take the pressure off this woman and put the focus on him. Let me tell you honestly what I think. I don't know what he wrote. 
I don't think it is about necessarily what he wrote. It's about the impression and the impact it had on the religious leaders. Because as soon as, if if we go to verse 7, as they continued to ask him, what do you say, teacher? He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is brilliant. The scribes, the Pharisees, they've challenged Jesus' view of the law. They've said, Jesus, we want you to pass sentence on this woman. And now Jesus says, okay, instead of passing sentence upon this woman, I'm going to pass sentence on you. Let the one of you without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they start leaving. Now, perhaps Jesus did write the Ten Commandments. Because we read again that he got down and he started writing in the sand again. And perhaps this time, next to the Ten Commandments, do not murder, he started writing the names of all of the religious leaders. Because he knew murder was on their hearts. We don't know, but we know one by one, these men who, had, who were filled for just a moment with a sense of excitement at the prospect of catching Jesus, of pinning him down, are now exposed for who they truly are. Sinners. And it doesn't seem that it was just the religious leaders who left and dropped their stones. The whole crowd left. Because we're told in verse Nine, Jesus was left alone with the woman. So there's all the people who perhaps had picked up a stone thinking this is going to be our opportunity to stone her. They all have to drop their stones and they all have to leave because Jesus has just forced them to do self-examination. What, the antidote to self-righteousness is self-examination. Now the amazing thing is who's left standing? Jesus. And so the writing session becomes a one-on-one session between Jesus and the woman. And the reason Jesus is with the woman is because he's the sinless one. He's the only one who's got the right to pick up a stone and start throwing it. Because he's perfect. He's got the right to pass sentence over to condemn her to death. But in this one-to-one session, that's not what happens. He stood up, and she's presumably at this point standing up. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Don't you just love her response? It's not just no one, it's no one Lord. And this isn't to butter Jesus up. This is because she realized that the one standing in front of her is sinless. This is her face-to-face with the Savior, one-on-one. Who's going to condemn you? Where are they? No one, Lord. And then she hears these amazing words from the mouth and lips of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. The one who has the right to condemn her says, neither do I. She's guilty of sin. 
but now she knows the goodness of having no condemnation. Do you know why? Because in a short time, Jesus, bearing shame, scoffing rude, in her place, condemned, he stood, sealed her pardon with his blood. Jesus would be condemned to death. The sinless one for sinful ones. The righteous one for unrighteous ones. Here's the reason for his, his, his compassion is because he, he had love that was really moved to action. He was going to take this sinner who was suffering and make her a glorious saint, as we see, she, she, she called him Lord. She loved him. You know, there's something that can be thrilling in a moment when you're condemning someone in your mind. See the Pharisees, it probably let off synapses, adrenaline rushing, if they've got this woman and they want her to be condemned. But you know what's even more thrilling? Condemnation. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's love that we don't deserve. Love we can earn, love we couldn't merit. And this woman becomes not the recipient of condemnation, scorn, or disdain. She becomes the object of love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does the next verse say? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now in this one-on-one teaching moment, because remember, this all started as a teaching session. Jesus has got something else to teach her. His first words to her after this is, Go. Now, this is incredible. Where could this woman go? Her husband probably wouldn't welcome her home. Where could she go? Her relatives and her family, her colleagues and her neighbors. They they all now know that she is a covenant breaker. She's been unfaithful. But Jesus says, go because her shame has been taken by him. Go. Go from here. Go because he has borne her shame, taken her guilt. He offers her new life. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus recognized this woman had sinned. Jesus recognized that This woman had fallen short of his glory, but his call to her to to go and sin no more is a call is go and live the new life that I have for you. Go live in my holy ways. See, Jesus is the loving Savior. He knows, right, our sin damages us. It destroys us. And the loving Savior says, go and don't continue in your way of sin. Turn from your sin. Turn and live for me. This woman gets hope from Jesus' lips. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. Go and live the life that I intend for you to live. Go. Go and enjoy me. 
go. I know that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, as we bring this to end, maybe some of us need a one-on-one teaching session with Jesus. Maybe some of us have got sin in our life this past week, this past month. Maybe it's sin from long ago, but we've never had it dealt with. Maybe we still feel the shame, the guilt, and the condemnation. Thoughts haunt us, trouble us. You need to hear the words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Because he was condemned for you. Maybe some of you, you you love Jesus. You want to live for Jesus, but you find yourself in bondage to your sin. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Don't go with the sin that's damaging you, destroying you. Go seek the Savior who loves you, who wants to remake you, renew you. Surely if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is the life you want. You don't want to suffer anymore in your sin and suffer anymore with sin. You want to know the new life, the life with Christ. A life where he crowns you with his love and his tenderness. A life where he clothes you with his righteousness. A life where you are the object of his love, his care and his commitment. We all need a one-on-one teaching session with Jesus because we're all sinners and sufferers. But he delights to make us his saints. Let's pray. Jesus, you've taught us so much this morning. You've taught us to examine our own hearts. When we see the sin of others, we should really look at the sin of ourselves. Jesus, you've you've shown us how to respond to those who do fall into sin round about us with compassion, with grace, and also with truth. And as practical as your example is for us and how we live our life as your people, so practical is this passage for how we should engage with you one-to-one. You want to deal with our souls. You want us to hear the good news of the gospel. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you were condemned in our place. We thank you that you bore our shame. You took our guilt. And you paid the penalty for our sin. And we thank you that you want to send us from here this morning to go and live the new life, the life in you. And so we pray that as we go into this week, we would go with a spring in our step, with a song in our mouth. What a savior you are. Glory, glory, hallelujah. In your name we pray this. Amen.